0: going to be all right I say, everything be all right
1: yes everything's going to be all right uh, good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio it's friday july 29th 2016 this week is episode 424 My name is Radio Joe Hughes. I am live in Studio D at Central City, Pennsylvania, but we're going to go back in the archives today because the Z-Man and I are on our little summer break here. We're going to flash back tonight. Well, this is going to be 2008, um, show number 70 with Andy Osk and Dr. Dietrich Wile. Andy's a PE out of uh, Florida now, and Dieter was our technical director for about eight years there. And he's out of uh, Pittsburgh area. So um, with no further ado, we're going to go ahead and thank our sponsors and get started. It's a great show. We re-edited it, remixed it, made sure the sound was good, got rid of anything that was kind of outdated. We had some Glenn Feldman stuff on there that really wasn't, uh, wasn't timely. So we're going to move, uh, move on and take care of the show. So, thanks to everyone, and we'll talk to you live again next week. John Don Products, where restoration and
2: abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's johndon.com.
3: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
2: IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine. industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net.
3: And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
2: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio. When you inquire about their services, and products.
0: Andrew Osk, professional engineer, is a consulting engineer located in Cape Coral, Florida. He specializes in the diagnostic, remediation, and retrofitting of existing HVAC systems for the purpose of improving performance, energy utilization, and indoor air quality. This work now includes evaluating building enclosure performance. His practice includes the preparation of mechanical, electrical, and plumbing design documents. He was educated at Iowa State where he uh, received a Bachelor of Science degree in Engineering Operations, and he also received a Juris Doctor from the Akron University of Law. He holds licenses in several states. He's a licensed attorney, he's a licensed mechanical contractor. He's currently on the board of directors for the Indoor Air Quality Association, and he's a life member of the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE. Mr. Ask has been consulting for the past 23 years and was in contracting for the previous 20, giving him 43 years of experience. And this enables him to temper the theoretical engineering and practical applications of what he runs into. The past 15 years, he's been devoted to solving humidity problems throughout the application of building science and replacing HVAC components in southwest Florida buildings. Andy, thank you so much for joining us and really for sending us this very interesting article you authored titled Preventing Harm to the Building Enclosure. I liked it because, first of all, I could understand it, and the article took some pretty complex subject matter and made it very understandable. If we could please, if we could just start with the basics, what does this acronym HARM, H-A-R-M, stand for? Uh,
4: good afternoon, thank you, and thank you for having me. Um Harm is an acronym for heat, air, radiation, and moisture. Those are the things we like our buildings to protect us from.
0: Okay, what's meant okay. by the building enclosure?
4: Okay, the building enclosure is the part of the building that separates the indoors from the outdoors. Uh, we break it down uh, for purposes of building science into three barriers, the air barrier, the thermal barrier, and the vapor barrier. Andy, I'm curious,
5: of the four components that you had, um, which is the most difficult for building scientists to, to deal with?
4: Well, I think we have, as a practical matter, we have the most difficulty, particularly in warm climates, with air, because the Air that comes into our buildings here and possibly in St. Croix uh, contains moisture, and moisture is quite harmful to our buildings and to us.
0: What's the difference between a moisture barrier and a moisture retarder?
4: Well, we're sort of splitting hairs as a definition of terms. The uh, whatever the endeavor is, it's always good to understand the strategy. It's always good to understand the goal, what we're trying to accomplish. So, with a barrier. We are trying to completely stop something. So, for example, a roof is almost always a barrier. We want to stop all the rain from coming in, and if any rain gets by the roof, then it has failed in its function as a barrier. Uh, on the other hand, insulation, thermal insulation, is a good example of a retarder. The heat's going to get in or the heat's going to get out, but we want to retard its flow with, with, a, with the insulation so that's that's the conceptual difference between a barrier and, and a Carter
0: what strategies are effective in minimizing and managing building leakage um,
4: well the in my mind the most important is the uh, is the air barrier now let me back up to the earlier question in our building codes in our literature we refer to an air barrier now let me talk about what a The air barrier I think that most of us see most of the time when we see new houses going up is the house wrap, the white, big white fabric that we see hanging on the outside of the houses. That's the air barrier. Uh, One we don't see, and it's it's quite common now in Florida, is the foam insulation that we spray on the underside of the roof sheathing. That prevents air from entering uh, the attic area. Uh, we kind of tangling up our own terms because... The air barrier is really a retarder. Air is going to get into the building. We want some air to get in. A little bit of air is good. We want to know how much. So, so it's really, it's really a retarder. Back to your, back to your question. The, the air barrier is the most important because nothing else works if we don't have an air barrier. Uh, the strategies that work Best, I mentioned the house wrap, and in the last approximately ten years, in our market, it has been spraying foam uh, on the underside of the of, of the roof sheeting. Uh, that's that's the part of the building that's most vulnerable to leakage.
0: Joe,
4: Andy, I have a, a question that relates to that. When you
5: spray the foam underneath the roof, and um, I, I want to know if I'm accurate in saying that when you do that. You move the enclosure or the envelope up, as opposed to when we put insulation on top of ceilings. You're putting insulation right below the roofing,
4: uh, the roof deck. That that is absolutely correct, Joe, and that's that's a good question. And that totally changes our conception or our our, uh, our building then, because yes, the the entire building up to and including the roof plane now is part of the part of the building enclosure.
5: Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here and getting a little more advanced, but I'm in St. Croix and I happened to look at some homes
0: yesterday. I understand. Uh, Andy, how do solid objects within a building gain or lose temperature?
4: Well, we generally think of three mechanisms um, conduction, convection, and radiation. And Cliff, could I just give you some simple examples of the three? Please do. Okay, um the I think the, the simplest example of conduction is uh a spoon in a, a pot of boiling water. We we, we we grab we grab the soup spoon to the ladle and it's hot. Well it got hot by conduction and then it in turn transmitted by con- being in contact with the water, and then it conducted heat per hand and we get burnt. That's conduction. Um convection is when uh warm air or water the heated at the bottom rises, and then colder air water falls to take its place. Um, a, a, again, a boiling pot of water comes to mind. Uh, that's, that's that's fairly visual. Um, the radiation sometimes is a little harder to understand. Uh, it's literally invisible, and we radiate heat to and from solid objects independent of the air around us. Um, a, the classic example is why we get hot when we face the pot belly stove and we get cold on the side that's away from the stove. Uh, a, uh, example, Another example we may not think quite so much about is um, some of you will, will notice dew on the grass or dew on your roof in the morning, but it hasn't fallen below the dew point at night. That's because the roof of the house or the windshield of the car, as it were, is losing heat to the dark sky by radiation. So those are the three mechanisms, Hmm. conduction, convection, and radiation.
0: Thanks. What's the greenhouse effect?
4: Um, When solid objects re-radiate heat, if I'm in a greenhouse uh, and being, most most of us don't go into greenhouses very often, uh, but we might be in a car and it may only be 70 degrees outside But the sun comes through the window of the car and heats uh, our bodies. Then our bodies become warm. We, in turn, re-radiate that heat, and we'd like to radiate it back out of the car. But it doesn't because um, we've increased the wavelength of the radiation, and it no longer will penetrate the window. And that's why the car gets hotter than outside. That's why our atmosphere is getting warm because uh, the long-wave radiation can't escape through it.
5: So, Andy, let me ask. I'm I'm curious. None of that long-wave radiation will go back out through this. I've got a sunroom, for instance. That's all that radiation that's been absorbed is going to stay in that sunroom. It's not going to go back out.
4: I I don't know the fact, Joe. You're slightly over my head. Generally speaking, no, it won't. It's trapped. Okay. Okay. I assume that also. Ends. When we get a chance, we'll ask Dr. Dieter. See, we we, we fortunately we have a real scientist, real <laughs> scientist today along with me. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: what what is right. it? What is interstitial condensation, and, and what are the common causes of it, Andy?
4: All right, uh, interstitial—that's one of those six-bit terms uh, we, we 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 love to throw around. Uh, Interstitial, I think, means something like between layers. I'm not sure why we don't just say between layers. I guess Then you wouldn't have to pay me to tell you what it means. Right. Um, the um, buildings and homes are made up of several layers of building materials. Uh, going from inside to house, outside in your home in Pittsburgh, you might have uh, sheetrock uh, on studs, and then between the studs is Fiberglass insulation, then on the outside of the studs will be plywood or OSB sheathing, and on top of that might be wood or aluminum siding. All these are layers. Um, our concern is that if one of these layers is, is hidden in the wall, does not allow moisture to pass, and we call it permeability. The more permeable uh, a, sub, a, a material is, the better it breathes, the better it allows moisture to pass. If the if the material is not permeable, then the moisture gets stopped in its tracks and it turns to water and that causes mold and rot. That's the concern with the interstitial condensation.
0: You know, speaking of mold and rot, is mold the contaminant most destructive to buildings?
4: Um, I would say no. Um, if I gotta down on one side or the other of that question. Um, uh, two reasons is the, what what destroys buildings, at least wood buildings, is rot. When the wood rots, that's what destroys the building. Um, mold and rot in wood are both fungi, but they're a different process. Rot is a much slower, more chronic problem than mold. So I'm more concerned about rot than I am in mold. That's a long-range problem. I mean, let me now. I'll give you a more of a, a more controversial uh, answer. Is in my opinion, water is the most serious contaminant in our buildings because none of these other things can happen without water. We can't have mold. We can't have rot. We can't have interstitial condensation. I say controversial because uh, when scientists get together and split hairs, as we're wont to do, uh, they would say that water is not a contaminant. It's simply a transport mechanism. I I disagree. I think water is our most serious contaminant.
5: Andy, although, you know, air conditioning improves occupant comfort, what are some of the undesirable side effects of installing air
4: conditioning, especially in these hot humid climates like Mm -hmm. I'm in right now? Okay, air conditioning um, creates a vapor Drive. It's not quite so easy to picture, but, 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 but uh, vapor acts a little bit like air. They're both gases, and uh, gases move from areas of high pressure to low pressure. Until we air condition, the vapor pressure inside and outside is about the same, and there's no drive, there's no um, head to cause moisture to move through the wall one way or the other. As soon as we air-condition, we reduce the vapor pressure inside the house, and now the vapor outside is trying to get in. It comes through the house, and it, it wants to condense. Um, further, because we are air-conditioning, we're making things everything colder, both in the house and in, in, in the wall. The surface is close to the living area. Uh, here, yeah, here's, one. Here, here's a surprise. Heat dries. That's the only way I know to dry, dry anything is with heat. Once we're air conditioning, we're taking away heat, we're taking away our source of drying, and things tend, tend, tend to stay wetter, after which they're more likely to mold and rot. So uh, that's, uh, that's the undesirable side effect of air conditioning.
0: How is internal building pressurization measured, and how can building pressurization be changed or even reversed?
4: Let me back up a bit, with why why we're even concerned is let's start out with the idea that we want our walls, and I say walls, I'm talking about the whole building enclosure. I'm just talking about a a wall as a representative component of that enclosure. We don't, we want it to be airtight. We don't want air to move through it. However, we know that there's going to be failures in our air, what's called the air retarder now is going to allow some air through. And if it does, um, we don't want the moisture in that air to condense. Okay, a way to discourage condensation is to pressurize the uh, the cool, dry side of the wall, so that if air were to go through, it would warm and move away from the dew point and not get closer to it. So in the south then we like our buildings to be positive pressure. In the north we like them to be negative because in the north the cool, dry side is typically outside, not inside. Plus well, I always forgot the question. You wanted to ask how we measure it, correct?
0: Correct. I wanted to know how we measured it and then how we can affect it, change it or reverse it.
4: Okay. Well, let's not waste too much time on how we measure it. Uh, when we talk about pressurizing buildings, it's a very, very small pressure we measure in uh, Pascal. Um, there's 250 Pascal in an inch of water column, and then it turned about 27 inches uh, of water column in a pound. To uh, use some round numbers, uh, the atmospheric pressure, the pressure in, of the air, around us, is about 100,000, 100,000 pascal. Again, Dr. Dieter will uh, correct me on that, what the actual number is, but that's, that's what we call a Joe math number. It's a round number. Okay, so if the atmosphere has a total pressure of around 100,000 pascal, we're trying to maintain a pressure of two and a half to 3 pascal in the house, very, very small pressure. One of the ways we do this is with our... Ventilation system. Chris, let me catch a breath here. What, what can I tell you about ventilation? Whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I just needed, needed um, to collect like, my thoughts there. Yes. Yes, Joe.
5: Chris, can you mute me for just a minute, please?
4: Okay. The uh, we depend upon then our building ventilation system to in the south to introduce more air than we're exhausting so the inside of the building will become positive in the north we depend upon our exhaust systems to make the building slightly negative but then the ventilation system in turn has to has to replace most of that air Uh, so that 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 kind of begins the discussion on the relationship between the ventilation system and the building enclosure
1: right
0: okay are the fields of building science and heating, ventilation, and air conditioning engineering interrelated? And if so, how?
4: Well, yes, and that that kind of that, that, that's where I came into this particular movie, if I can tell a short story. Um, I was in Florida about five years in the early 90s, and working with the suppliers and contractors. Uh, of course, the first thing I did was tell everybody how we tended up north, and then I found out that the south was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, at least I, I was specifying and getting people installed ever bigger and ever more expensive and ever more complicated cooling and dehumidification systems to no avail. Uh, as about that time, about, about the mid nineties or late nineties, I thought I think maybe I'm getting my head against the wall here. In fact, the wall turned out to be the problem. We better see what the building looks like. So it turns out our buildings to the air conditioning system looked like more like. Hard ports. They leaked. So the, uh, the so again, getting back to your question, uh, there's no way we can control the air in the building unless we have a pressure vessel with which to contain the air, and that kind of summarizes the relationship between the building and, and the and HVAC.
0: Okay, good. I think what we're going to do now is we're probably halfway
3: through the show, and we're going to get ready for our What's New segment. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs
2: of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers.
3: Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation, Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends
2: Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. That's johndon.com.
3: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
2: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net.
3: And Particles Plus, they are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters Air quality monitoring instrumentation and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be
2: sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
5: Andy, I, um, you were talking about um, building pressurization and how building pressurization can be measured. I guess maybe I was under a misconception. Maybe you can help me. Do- most all building scientists now, people who, you know, with your level of understanding of the issue, agree that buildings in the type of climate you're in should be positively pressurized and in colder climates should be slightly negative. I always thought maybe the rule of thumb was slight, like, slightly negative everywhere was better than uh, positive or, or, you know,
4: negative in certain areas. Uh, can you comment on that? Sure, and uh, uh, I'll be like a politician. Uh, I'll use that as a lead in something else I want to say that that will actually address your question, Joe. How's that? Great. Uh, um, One thing that we've been saying a little too loud and a little too long, is that buildings need to be pressurized, whether they're positive or negative. Okay, we've made way too big a deal out of that. Homes, in particular, are very difficult to pressurize. This little tiny pressure I'm talking about... uh, Two or three pascal is much a much more a much smaller and a, a much smaller pressure than we ever hope to achieve with our ventilation systems. Uh, particularly when we're dealing with the wind, the wind uh, trumps us hundred or a thousand to one. So our emphasis should be in the south, not negative, and if we can, let's try to get it positive. In the north, not positive. Uh, so the, the buildings don't necessarily need to be under pressure. But what we what we do, I do want to emphasize, Joe, is that if air does indeed escape through the wall, then we want it to be coming from the cool and drier side. Okay. And I guess I do disagree with you. Yes, I do want the buildings in the south to be positive.
5: You want the buildings in the south to be positive, and and if the buildings in the north are slightly positive, it doesn't sound like it would be a really bad thing but
4: well, well let me make a statement there make an observation that I, I, again I think we people who work with we get, we've just gotten entirely too narrow in our focus uh, let's get our eye back on the ball let's, let's work harder to construct our buildings out of materials and in ways that's less vulnerable to moisture uh, and that are capable of drying themselves then we don't have to worry too much about uh, being slightly positive or slightly negative. A concrete block building here in the south, for example, the concrete block in stucco doesn't care too much whether it gets moisture.
0: You know, you described air conditioning as strong medicine. What do you mean by that?
4: Well, I touched on it a little bit earlier, is uh, the medicine part is that it makes us feel better. In other words, most North Americans now, at least those of us south of the 49th parallel, Want air conditioning. I think somebody told us if you, if you put our offices and homes along with our, our offices and cars along with our homes, we're inside like 90% of the time. So, so we like air conditioning. That's the medicine. The side effect that I alluded to earlier is that, um, I've made, here I've made this statement. Air conditioning is about the dumbest thing you can do to a building. I mean that that, that that that's putting your building on steroids because we make it cooler and damper and it's more likely to rock. That's that's the side effect of the air conditioning.
5: That's an interesting thing
4: for an air conditioning engineer or
5: a, a professional engineer that specializes in air conditioning to say, Andy. But I appreciate
4: uh, your honesty. And uh, it looks like well, well, well Joe, to... talk talk to talk to talk to the people there in, in St. Croix that, that have been there a long time. Talk to anybody that grew up in Florida. They'll tell you they never had to worry about mold or moisture until we air conditioned. I mean, uh, so maybe some maybe there's a connection there. All right, absolutely. All right. <laughs> I agree. They um, the other problem
5: we find is when you try to retrofit buildings that were built and designed not necessarily to incorporate air conditioning and then you try to add air conditioning. What are some of the common mistakes made there, Andy?
4: Again, Joey, say when we record fit the building to be air conditioned? Yes. Well, with our old our old buildings were that weren't built for air conditioning, were built to be ventilated. They're, they're loose and we wanted them to be loose so the air flowed through on them and they breathed. Uh, now if we try to air condition a building like that now we create this vapor drive and we suck moisture through through the walls and be it begins to condense so the important one of the most important things in these uh, existing buildings is that they have a good again a good air barrier they, if they leak we shouldn't be air conditioning them uh, we need to insulate them so that the air conditioning works but then when we air, when we add add thermal insulation anytime we add insulation that creates the potential for it increases the potential for condensation and, at the same time, diminishes the potential for drying because we've made things cooler. Uh, we, of course, want to look for an inadvertent vapor barrier. Uh, before air conditioning, you could have vinyl wallpaper or polyethylene, if you wanted to, in the inside of your building. Uh, of course, uh, that would be the kiss of death with air conditioning because all the water would condense on the backside of it. That would be some of the things I'd be
3: looking for. Can you
0: comment on the disconnect between heating, ventilation, and air conditioning engineers and building science practitioners?
4: Um, this is only an hour show, isn't it, Cliff? <laughs> <laughs> um, heating uh, and air conditioning engineers um, traditionally treat the Building as a given. I mean, that's, that's by others. That's information that someone writes down on a sheet of paper and gives to us. That's probably a mistake. We need to pull a chair up to the table with the architect and contractor and code officials and talk about how the building is constructed. Um, another disconnect is the air conditioning engineer is generally has no communication with and no coordination with the people that build the building. So we assume the worst. Uh, if we've seen some sloppy construction, then we think everybody's sloppy. And we, we, think, we think the building's going to leak. We don't think the thermal insulation is going to work. So we oversize everything because we don't want to get sued. We, 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 if, if the air conditioning doesn't work, we don't, we don't want to take the blame for it. Um, so the air conditioning system and the air conditioning engineering is not well coordinated with the building. Um, I think I mentioned in that article I sent you, uh, the air conditioning and the building and building science are all linked by the laws of physics and thermodynamics. The laws of phys- thermodynamics don't know how we break down our work. Unfortunately, in our world, then, we have job descriptions where the engineer traditionally does something, the architect does something else, the builder does something else, the people who manufacture the materials do something else, and none of us talk to each other. Those are some of the problems. <laughs>
0: Joe, do you want to talk anything specific about St. Croix and what you're running into? Do you have any questions there?
5: You read my mind, Cliff. Okay. Andy, I'm looking at some housing, and I I don't think this is just St. Croix, but also any hot, humid climate, where, uh, in this particular case, we've got concrete walls, and then we've got uh, plywood for the ceiling, and we've got plywood for the roof deck, and... um, a, an HVAC system, the, the air conditioners in a closet, but the ductwork runs up through an attic. And obviously, there were, there were, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but there initially were problems with sweating on this, actually, they were using metal ductwork. So they started by, you know, insulating that ductwork and then insulating it more and Eventually, they went to a specific type of insulation that seemed to help, but it got to the point where they ended up moving that enclosure barrier up to the bottom of the roof deck and used a closed-cell foam. Now, after you put that closed-cell foam in there, can you cut back on the amount of insulation on the ductwork in the attic now, or you still need to maintain that heavy amount of insulation on there?
4: uh, Joe, in my opinion, yes, you can cut back on the insulation. Uh, Once they've sprayed the foam on the inner side of the roof deck and assuming the rest of the house with the concrete block and so forth is also tight, uh, you could have no insulation. They could go back to their bare metal duct and it would work just fine. And if we lose, have some heat gain to the duct, that's not a problem because the heat came from the house. Everything's inside now. We're just doing the cooling a little sooner when the uh, uh, bare ductwork uh, gains heat, heat heat by conduction. So yes, by all means, they could they could reduce the insulation in the duct.
5: I, I just wanted to note also that they did spray over what were originally designed to be soft vents, and I'm assuming that was the correct thing to
4: do. Absolutely. The the idea of venting a soffit is a northern idea. We should have left that uh, up in the Great Lakes area. Uh, because in the north, the moisture is inside, trying to get out. And if you allow it to get in your attic but don't vent it, it'll rot the roof boards. Down here, the moisture is on the outside, trying to get it, and we want to seal up the soffits. By all means, seal the soffits. What I found was even
5: more interesting is that um, they are now, it, it appears they'll be able to go from a three-ton to a two-and-a-half-ton and possibly down to a two-ton air conditioning unit just because of changing the way they designed the building enclosure, and on top of that, they will, you know, now have a home that doesn't sweat and have mold in
4: it. That's, that's wonderful. Could you have them notify the engineers in Florida? Because the engineers in Florida don't talk to the people who seal up the houses, and they're still sizing air conditioners as though the houses were the way before they put the foam on the attic. That's wonderful to hear here that they're able to reduce the size of the air conditioners.
5: It it took a while to figure this all out, Andy, and there was a lot of trial and error, but I think they're on the right track, and I just wanted to um, ask if you could confirm that.
4: Absolutely. I I wish they would uh, let us know here in Florida, because the engineers in Florida haven't got the word yet.
5: (laughs) I have another specific question, too. Um, It's not just hot humid climates, but all over the country we see these exterior uh, systems, whether they're a stucco system or a uh, synthetic type of uh, stucco system. I'm wondering if you have any tips for us on on stucco and um, what to watch for, when you're using stucco on different uh, exterior claddings. I know on concrete, maybe you could talk about the difference between on concrete, on OSB, and on um,
4: maybe on some insulation of some type, like a blackboarder. Sure. The um, concrete block is capable of storing a lot of water. So we don't care too much if the water leaks through the stucco, and it will, and gets in the block because... The, eventually after the rain, the sun comes out, it gets hot, and it dries the block out. And with any kind of water, most of the water vapor goes outside, and what little comes inside, we can take out with the air conditioner. Uh, wood, unfortunately, has less capacity to store water and is less forgiving. It rots. Metal studs, if the if the wall is built of metal, of course, have, have no capacity for storage. So if we don't have concrete block, then we need a drainage plane behind the stucco, a, a layer that could, uh, could be as simple as tar paper uh, to catch the rain that comes through the stucco, or the ephus, the synthetic stucco, and then allows it to drain back out at the bottom of the building. Where Efas got its bad name was uh, nobody had the presence of mind to put a drainage plane behind it and a drainage space. So even though everybody now is so scared of EFAS, they won't use it. If we were to incorporate a drainage plane, it could be as simple as house wrap behind the uh, EFAS, then it would work just fine. But but, we, but if you're having any kind of stud construction, we have to have some means to drain the water out out of the stucco.
5: Andy, how important is it now? I, I, I'm assuming you read the latest ASHRAE journal. And there was an, uh, an article on this issue, and it, it recommended, in some cases, at least two layers of house wrap or felt paper as that air barrier. Is that something you go along with? you think that's necessary at, at times?
4: Uh, we only need one good air barrier. Two defective air barriers aren't going to solve the problem. Um were I believe the problem I believe you're alluding to is if you put the what you think is going to be the rain screen, the drainage plane, if you will, in contact immediately behind the stucco. Uh, uh, some of you are aware of a product called uh, paper lap. It's metal lap, and it has tar paper uh, behind it. The lap is, is uh, fastened to tar paper. Well, it's hard paper to start out with. We just find to drain the rain out of the building, but as soon as we put stucco on it, it crinkles up and adheres to the stucco, and it and now the water can't drain between the stucco and the paper anymore. So, you always have to have one more layer behind that to act as the drainage plane. So that 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 would be the reason for having two layers. And yes, Joe, if you have stucco, and if you have studs, you do have to have two layers of something. Great. Well, thanks for
5: clearing that up for me, Andy. In the past, you've been, you know, I I don't even know, maybe it's 10, 15 years now, and, um, you know, building science has become a big, I don't know, it's a a word that we've used, I, I think, for, say, the last 15 years. What are the biggest changes that you've seen in building sciences over the
4: last 15 years? Well, the biggest change that I've seen is that building science itself has come of age, uh uh all of all of you guys on on with me here have heard this many times, but I'll say it again for the benefit of our listeners is starting at approximately uh, World War II right after World War II with the building boom that ensued when the when the GIS came home, we begin using all sorts of manufactured building materials drywall, visqueen, bad insulation... Uh, vinyl siding, aluminum siding, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, The individual manufacturers, people making these products, uh, worked very hard to engineer them, to test them, to rate them, to certify them, uh, make them better, and so forth. Nobody was looking at how all these products were interacting, working with each other. So it's only what's happened in the last 15 years is the building science community has now got their arms around how these things work together, and now we know how to use them so we can use all these modern materials and have buildings that work. That's what's changed in the last 15 years.
5: Andy, I I didn't realize how late it's getting here. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. I want to make sure that we ask if there's anything we forgot to ask you that you'd like to add before we go
4: to the roundup. Does that sound good to you? If, if I could, I, I've got a, a question for Dieter that he, he can address.
0: Well, we can do that in the uh, roundup then.
4: Okay, then, no, I'm done. Hit him up,
0: hit him up, hit him up, 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 up raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, cut him out, cut him out. Ride him in raw Okay, Andy, we'll pick up with you. And you had a question that you wanted to pose to Dieter, so let's do it now.
4: Okay, um, this is sort of hard to do without a visual. But Dieter, what I'm referring to is a practice I've seen here becoming more dominant in Florida, is people are installing filters that match the size of our air handlers. Dieter, you're familiar with little air handlers we have with the coil that's folded in a B or an A so, it's a go, so it can go between the trusses and we get in our attics? Sure, yeah. Okay. Um, in my opinion or my concern is that those filters don't have enough area. So does it make any difference how fast we blow the air over the filters? And what, and what happens if we blow it too fast or too slow? Oh, like,
6: it certainly does make a difference. And um, perhaps not in the beginning. Uh, that you would, in, If you go faster, you would increase the uh, impaction parameter of filtration. There is impaction, interception, and diffusion. And in some cases, electrical forces are, uh, you you can charge filters and you can charge filter fibers. But sure as hell, it makes a a difference of what the uh, velocity is. And I think it may also screw up the whole heat balance. If not enough air goes over, let's say, an A-coil, I think you are asking for problems. So uh, it's, it's one of those things. You've got to balance all three at the same time, the temperature, the velocity, and the filter size. And while I'm unmuted over here, you were absolutely right. Uh, one atmosphere, which is about you know, 29.9 inches of mercury, which is the same as 14.7 pounds per square inch, and you are damn close to the pascals. If you use 100,000, you make less than a 1% error. The true value is 101,352.9. I love that decimal place there at the end. That's really important. (laughs) That's a part per million at the end. So if you use 100,000, if that is the only mistake you're making, you're not making a mistake at all. Joe asked me to give you a little bit of a background on filter testing. And I have been doing that literally for the last 30 uh, oh my God, 1968, 78, 88, 9, that's almost 40 years, yes. And a lot of things have changed through the years. In the old days, literally the only way we had really available to do that was to have a filter paper or a filter holder before the filter and after the filter and we rated, we made the efficiency by rate. In other words, how much was the concentration in front of the filter, how much in the behind, and from that you can calculate very easily the efficiency by dividing one by the other and multiplying by 100 to get it in percent. Um, That was one method, and the next step, well, actually the next step was a particle counter Uh, which came around at that time, in about 1970 or thereabouts, where we actually had particle counters. The one that I worked with cost, I think, something like $350,000. And it didn't do as well as the instruments which are available today for about $3,000. But at the time, the University of Pittsburgh also bought a computer for $15 million, and my laptop will put that computer to shame. So things have changed, of course, with uh, microcircuits and all of that. Uh, So we had a particle counter. Now we are uh, determining the efficiency by count, which is the most stringent uh, one, because if you catch one particle, you just count it once. If you uh, uh, catch a particle and you weigh it, that goes up by the cube. So the efficiency, is expressed by weight, and by number, is uh, I mean, it, it can be off by a factor of 10 very easily. And a newer, somewhat newer method um, has been developed. ASHRAE, the American Society of Refrigeration and Air Conditioning Engineers, um, has been developed. That is the method 52, ASHRAE 52. Now, and uh, Joe has, may have to correct me, but this has something to do that you collect the particles again on a filter paper but you don't weigh that filter you shine light through it before and after the filter again if the filter is very dirty and and that is the filter paper not the filter that you're testing the filter paper if it is very dusty and dark and black well then very little light can shine through and that is how they determine the efficiency. Actually, you can almost say it's by area because the light beam is attenuated by the dirty particles and the, the light beam sees the outline of the particles, so to speak, what we call the projected area diameter. So we have it by weight, by area, and by number. By number is the most stringent way of testing it. And that is how Uh, HEPA filter, the high efficiency paper air filters are tested. That, If you want to call yourself a true HEPA filter, it has to be done by particle count. Now, the most important thing in the whole testing is your test aerosol and just to make it very clear, if I were to test a filter with very, very large particles the size of a hair or so Well, just about every filter that we would be testing would be 100% efficient. So we have to have a more stringent aerosol in front of the filter that we are trying to get rid of. And of course, if, if we look at filter, why do we do filtration? Well, there are several reasons for it. The one that comes to mind first is that we want to protect our lungs. We want to have a filter that filters out those particles which can be inhaled and deposited in the lung. That would be ideal. Now, those are pretty efficient filters. Those are something like HEPA filters because we are talking about particles less than 10 micrometers in diameter. As a reference, a human hair is about 100 micrometers in diameter. So it's 10 times smaller than a human hair. Now that is microscopic. But those are the particles which hurt us. We are inhaling them. They are deposited in the lung, and depending on whether they are active or just uh, an inert particle, uh, they can do the damage. Of hygienic hygienic interest are those particles 10 micrometers or less. Now, going one step further, we have all filters in our houses, in our uh, air conditioning and heating systems. There are filters in there. Now, these filters, people think that if they are replacing them, that they are filtering out these small particles, 10 micrometers or less. Well, they really don't. Why do we have then that filter in there? In our heating systems and air conditioning systems, they are basically there to protect the equipment, not our lung. Not our lung. So that is an interesting point. And... um, we, we, we know that from the new testing methods that these little particles are going through. We want to remove the larger particles because they would clog up our A-coil. coils. is where the air conditioning takes place, where the cooling takes place. So of utmost importance is that aerosol up front. And the way Ashery does it, I don't like it. They make a mixture of carbon black, uh, some sand from the desert of uh, Arizona, and some fibers they get from a cotton mill in either South or North Carolina. To me, this is not well enough defined. Is everybody who is using that, uh, aer- uh, that um, aerosol, uh, are they always having the same? If we want to compare apples and apples and oranges and oranges, we all should have the same test aerosol in front of uh, the filter which we are, t- are trying to test. And again, it is quite clear. If I wanted to cheat, I wanted to cheat. What can I do? I can play with that aerosol in the front of the filter. I'll use a larger one. A larger one, of course. Larger particles are easier, easier filtered out, and then I have a higher uh, efficiency. Well, that is cheating, particularly if they don't tell you what the particle size distribution was in front of the filter. On the other hand, if I were to give you all the details of the particle size distribution in front of the filter that I'm testing, now we are talking about log log normal distribution, and we need log probability paper to uh, test that. Who the heck would even understand that? So um, on, on, on one hand, uh, not a lot of people are familiar with this and how to do that. So... Some of uh, the tests which were out there, even the older tests, they give us a number, but they don't really tell us what was in front of the filter. And that, I hope everybody understands it. If If I cheat and I use a larger particle, my efficiency goes up. If I want to shoot myself in the foot, I only use very small particles, like one micron or something like that. Then most of that goes through most of the filters that we are knowing, excluding, let's say, the HIPAA filters, the high-efficiency particulate air filters. So those are the tricks of the trade. It is not an easy endeavor. Even weighing the filter papers with which I catch the aerosol, even that sometimes is difficult. It's more difficult than people think. So those are the problems that we are running into when we are testing filters, there are a lot of things over there. You just can't take a technician and say, "Here, run the test and tell me what it is in half an hour." It can't be done. It is a lengthy procedure which should be done by somebody who understands uh, filtration mechanisms and uh, it understands the parameters which we are using to test those filters. Oh, can I breathe now? <laughs> pleasure.
5: I well thank, thank, you. You, my thank you. Andy
6: the,
4: the, the listeners should understand the difference between Dieter and me is that Dieter has a triple digit IQ
6: <laughs> no I don't think so <laughs> well I go yeah I go with 99 in a little bit
0: <laughs> Joe anything you'd like to add
5: I would just like to uh, quickly ask Andy Andy I know it's another subject for another show but um, any quick let's see uh, advice? For the rapidly growing green building movement,
4: um, yes, uh, keep humidity control in mind. Uh, the object, one of the one of the objects of green building, is to use less and less energy. As we decrease the amount of energy we use in our buildings, we decrease the amount of heat available for drying. As we decrease our ability to dry. We increase the potential for moisture, and the resulting mold so green people figure out how you're going to keep your building dry
0: this is cliff slotniker the z-man saying thank you to our guests my co-host radio joe our technical director dr dietrich Weil, and to the wingman chris boizel but most importantly to you our growing group of loyal listeners please come back and join us next friday at noon eastern standard time for the next broadcast of iaq radio